So everybody's fighting for headspace. Everybody's fighting for shelf space. What do you folks do to carve out a successful niche? So I think that that just comes back to our number one value, which is flavor first. I think specialty foods is crowded right now inside of the functional space. Um, and I think that there is a huge focus typically on one trend at a time. And so you'll see a hundred specialty foods companies launch um, in a year. If, if this is not a real number, <laughs> but you'll, mm -hmm. you'll see a hundred specialty foods companies launch and you will see 90 of them focus on the same thing. This is C2C where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to C2C everyone. Today, great guest, Jimmy Feeman, who is co-founder of a really cool company. The name of the company is the No Baked Cookie Dough Company. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Gary. So let's start with your background. Tell, you know, tell our listeners about your personal background and, and how you got into this crazy business. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So I um, graduated from college actually in 2015. So about two years later, No Baked is what I was doing. Um, in between that time, um, I worked at a couple, an insurance company. I worked for the state of Tennessee's treasury department, um, a few other things in finance. And I just could not figure out uh, what was missing, I guess, in me being satisfied with my job. Um, it turns out because I was always hopping from job to job and always looking for the next thing, I was really geared toward being an entrepreneur. Um, and I just did not know that at the time. I didn't have any influences in my life at that time that I think I could look at personally that were, you know, hey, I'm an entrepreneur and this is what you could be doing. And it seems like you're struggling because this is where you, you should be looking uh, to, you know, go down this path. So uh, right around the time um, I got into my third job after college, it's a year and out, a year and a half after I got out of school, um, my now wife, girlfriend then, Megan, started uh, selling cookie dough online. Um, and she started doing that part-time, um, quickly just decided to leave her job and do that all the time and then roped me into it really quickly um, because she did not want to have to carry like the giant mixers full of cookie dough at the kitchen. Mm. <laughs> so I, I got roped into making cookie dough uh, really early on. This is uh, spring of 2017. Um, we spent that summer doing a lot of farmer's markets um, and things like that. And the, the business just kind of evolved from there. Um, but I feel like, you know, it's wild to now say that most of my post-school career has been spent on no-bake the last five years of my life have just been cookie dough and that's it <laughs> <laughs> that's it and are you, i assume you're glad that you didn't spend the next 40 years working in state government i i am really glad <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so so tell us about the company what's you know what's unique about the company what's what's the company's mission what's your strategy yeah uh that's a great question so we we kind of experimented a lot in the very beginning of, of the business. So after that first summer, we opened our first scoop shop and our initial goal was to actually own retail stores. Um, you can think about our scoop shops, just like an ice cream shop. We, if someone would come in, a customer would come in and we scooped cookie dough for them. 
Um, we also made milkshakes and sundays, and we still have a few of those shops open today. Um, over the next two years, we opened um, we opened up eight stores, and three of them were franchised, five of them were ours, and then the pandemic came around. And right before that actually happened, we realized that, uh, well, at the time, we realized we don't have a mission. And we also realized we don't really know what we're doing. Like, we don't know where we're going. And it's hard to know if you're doing a good job at what you're doing if you don't know where you're going. Um, so late 2019, uh, my wife, I, and a couple other team members at NoBake decided to sit down uh, and come up with a strategy. You know, who, who are we? What is our mission? And then what do we value? Um, out of that planning session, or the, a lot of planning sessions, came our number one value, which is flavor first. So... The number one thing we base everything on at No Baked Cookie Dough is whether or not something tastes good. And that comes from our roots um, at farmer's markets, experiencing uh, our product with our customers, but also from our scoop shops. So our product was developed and really piloted in a restaurant environment. And because of that, the thing that made the most sense to us was let's focus on flavor. Let's focus on the thing that people actually come buy our product for and why why they'll come back a second time. Um, so we didn't focus on any pandering uh, with labels or, you know, let's develop a vegan product right out of the gate. The number one thing that's always been important to us is flavor. Um, right after that, when the pandemic started, was when we really pivoted the company into a CPG brand. Um, we had already been working on that pivot. Um, at the time, we were doing maybe $20,000 in packaged goods sales through our website. Um, and during the pandemic, that number spiked to at one point we were doing um, almost $80,000 a week in, in direct-to-consumer sales. Hmm. Um, and we really started to feel that our packaged product made more sense because it felt easier. Um, it felt like it was more geared toward our strengths um, and who we were as people. So uh, out of that kind of was born our strategy, which is to always shamelessly be ourselves um, promote the fact that we care about flavor over everything else and to promote the fact that there is not a lot of good cookie dough, especially not a lot of good safety eat cookie dough in the cookie dough aisle in the grocery store. Um, and it's not to say that that is a huge problem for the world, but we tend to think that it is a problem um, because a lot of big CPG companies have forgotten flavor as a huge component as to why their customer buys their product. Um, and they've been sitting in this place in certain categories for over 50 years with not a lot of competition for flavor or, you know, a lot of brands focus these days on functional products. And I think that's awesome. Um, but they also haven't had a lot of competition in that space. So our secondary value and, and what we value secondary is uh, just making sure we serve a quality product um, that not only has a great flavor, but is also as good for you as we could bake it. Um, at the same time, I'm never going to claim that a dessert product is good for you. Um, but what I will say is that we use all of the ingredients that we can that could be considered natural. Um, we have a couple flavors that are dairy-free. We have a gluten-free recipe. Um, we definitely make sure that we cater to all aspects and all groups. Um, but our number one value and our number one strategy is to just focus on flavor and hope that you know the rest kind of falls in line. So having having a couple of your own stores uh, first, so you could be right there watching the consumers dig in. How, did that was that a big advantage with Flavor First? It was a huge advantage, um, and to this day, it is still an advantage. We have a 
scoop shop on Broadway in Nashville uh, that sees walk tra walk by traffic of about 16 million people a year. Um, and that's during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, that location would have seen about 20 million people a year. Um, and just passing by walk walk by traffic, it's part of a food hall uh, concept. So we get to sample a lot um, and we launch new flavors there all the time just to see what it is that people are attracted to um, in the store. And then also to get their thoughts on, you know, do you like this? Um, I think that's a huge advantage because I think it's something that a lot of larger CPG companies, but also smaller companies just don't really get into unless they started selling their product in a farmer's market. Justin's, um, Justin's Almond Butter is a really good example of a brand that started out with farmer's markets and a lot of sampling. Um, and it allowed them to start to understand that consumers were looking for something different. I think that unless a brand starts out in a farmer's market or with some kind of in front of the customer presence, it's really, really hard to predict what people will actually like. Um, for instance, it's really hard to predict with our brand um, that people didn't necessarily become attracted to brownie batter um, when brownie batter seems like an obvious choice for a skew. Um, and on the other hand, we get a ton of interest in cookies and cream. Um, and that didn't necessarily seem like an obvious choice right out of the gate. So I think when it comes to picking SKUs and comes to picking what your company focuses on, it's really, really important to get customer feedback. Mm. Makes me wonder if some of the big CBG brands should just open a store instead of bringing a fo focus group into a conference room. Yeah, you can make some money. <laughs> <laughs> so um so you've got your stores and you've got an online focus uh what can you share with us about um tr uh, any plans for traditional retail outlets so with traditional we're taking a very interesting approach um we are selling uh with a couple of the natural products independent distributors like unfi and pod foods um and we are targeting like the really cool niche local grocery store with that effort. But our main focus right now is actually GoPuff. Um, and so those, for those of you who aren't familiar with GoPuff, um, they are sort of an Amazon competitor that focuses on food. Um, you could also call them, you know, a big grocery competitor because that's kind of what they do. Um, they have fulfillment centers, micro fulfillment centers in 500 metro areas across the country. And today they guarantee delivery in 30 minutes or less. A really small delivery fee, it's usually around $3. Sometimes it's free with a certain basket size. And it's different than Instacart because you're not working with traditional grocers, you're working with GoPuff. And those are the buyers buying your product. Um, because we had such success online at first and because GoPuff has had such a success in the snacking space, um, we decided to launch with them first as our first, call it like big traditional grocer. Um, so we launched with them about two months ago in the Southeast in Florida and Georgia. Um, hopefully soon we'll be bringing on Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, and some other places that we traditionally had stores. And that has been really, really important for us because it's allowed us to do what we do well which is market in essentially an e-commerce space um, because you market inside of GoPuff's app similar to the way you would market inside of Facebook or Instagram. Um, so we're very familiar with that platform, familiar with working in that space. And GoPuff has been a really great partner because they didn't require us to have a distributor up front. 
and they let us go direct to them. So that allowed us to then open up distribution with UNFI um, and also with Pod Foods. So they've been a really, really great partner. Um, and I think they're going to be really important to our future. And our second um, partner that we hopefully will be bringing on very soon is DoorDash. So DoorDash is piloting a same, similar concept right now. Um, they have 92 fulfillment centers across the country. Um, we're going to be going into five of those and then hopefully growing with them as they open up, I think it's 20 new fulfillment centers a month for the next year. Um, and so you can think of all of these as a traditional grocery store, except it's accessed through an app. And then your groceries are delivered to you within 30 minutes. For GoPuff, their number one categories are alcohol, baby supplies, snack foods, um, and a ton of ice cream. So uh, they're a huge Unilever partner, obviously, because Unilever owns all of the ice cream. Um, and mm. uh, they've been just—they've been a really great partner for us. So that—that that is really our our near-term strategy for grocery. Um, and our hope is that because it will help us open up distribution, it will make accessing other grocery stores a lot easier. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And I, and I would assume GoPuff, they're not trying to fulfill everything. They're not trying to fulfill every SKU you'd find in a, in a typical grocery store. It almost sounds like their most popular items are indulgences. That is true. Um, and it aligns really, really well with our strategy and hmm. who we are as a company. Interesting. So, you know, I'm going to call uh, call the niche specialty foods. Maybe you have a different name for it, Jimmy. But regardless, you know, it's growing, but a crowded sector. So everybody's fighting for headspace. Everybody's fighting for shelf space. What do you folks do to carve out a successful niche? So I think that that just comes back to our number one value, which is flavor first. I think specialty foods is crowded right now inside of the functional space. Um, and I think that there is a huge focus typically on one trend at a time. And so you'll see a hundred specialty foods companies launch um, in a year. If, if This is not a real number. <laughs> but you'll, mm -hmm. you'll see a hundred specialty foods companies launch and you will see 90 of them focus on the same thing. Um, a really good example right now, and I don't know if you would call this specialty food, but would be meat substitutes. So there was Impossible Foods, and now there are, if, if you walk the floor, I'm sure that at this upcoming, um, like even just fancy foods, I'm sure you'll see a hundred booths for companies that are doing some kind of like vegan meat substitute. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes a crowded space because people see that one player who has gone where nobody else wanted to go because either it didn't make sense from a manufacturing standpoint, they didn't think consumers' heads were there, um, or whatever the reason might have been. And because they focused on the space that no one else really cared about or people thought was uh, matured, um, they were able to innovate in a way that allowed them to succeed. Um, you're right when you say that it is really hard to differentiate with food. Um, I could tell you all day long that our food tastes better and I can't really put that on my packaging and it's very hard to market. So our number one goal as a company when it comes to that is just making sure that we can sample as much as we possibly can, whether it's through our scoop shops, whether it's through really cool partnerships that we do, um, but also just continuing the, to focus on not catering to some sort of food trend. So not getting trapped inside of, we're gonna try because our products just so happen to essentially be vegan. 
Um, and we're looking into getting a plant-based logo on our product, but we're not going to lean into that market. We're not going to start saying like, oh, we are a vegan cookie dough company. This is what we do. We're just going to stick to flavor first and the fact that we believe making really tasty product is what matters. Um, I think that allows us to differentiate because you're doing something that simply nobody else is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of brands, I'll even talk to people in big CPG and they, they don't care to hear about another indulgent snack food because that's not where the trend is going in their mind. Um, but there's also data that comes out almost every three months that you see a new article somewhere that says now over 50% of food is consumed outside of mealtime. So most people are snacking more and more and more. And so I think that says a lot about where the consumer is going. They're looking for more packaged specialty snacks and they're going to want dessert at some point. And if you make a really cool dessert and you're not claiming to be healthy and you're not claiming to be anything different than what you are, it allows you to be authentic. And I think consumers really connect with that. So let's dive a little bit deeper into the psyche of your typical happy consumer who's, uh, who's eating no-bake cookie dough. Um, what's in their brain? You just said, you mentioned authenticity. Um, is, it, is it other drivers? Is it people looking for new experiences? Is it nostalgia? What's, what's going on inside their heads? There's a lot of nostalgia. And that's a really great word to describe what's going on. Um, a lot of people have that really cool memory of making cookies with their father, grandmother, grandpa, mother um, at the holidays. And that memory um, typically involves eating some of the cookie dough, um, not just baking all of it. And so the number one comment that we heard, especially early on at our stores was, wow, this really reminds me of baking cookies with, you know, whoever that person was. Um, That I think is really important because it's allowing us to access something that, you know, means a lot to that customer that they weren't necessarily able to access before. Can just go buy cookie dough that's meant to eat raw. Um, The second thing um, is being authentic and also really, really leaning in to creating a snacking experience. So something that we've tried to do recently is showcase how our product can be used as far as like take it home, mix it with ice cream, take it home, make whatever baked good you want to make out of it. Um, And we've done a lot of really cool videos on that concept. Uh, The third, like, I guess the third thing that's going on in the consumer's mind is, Hey, I want to buy dessert. Like I want to snack. Um, and typically what you'll see in dessert and, and a lot of people in dessert retail know this is people come seek you out after dinner in a very limited period of time. And they also seek you out in the late afternoon. Um, sometimes after they get done with their lunch break from work, just because they're seeking out something that they can enjoy, um, that they you know don't necessarily have to like overthink. And they're like, hey, I'm looking for a snack. And right now seems to be snack time and that makes me feel good. Um, so they're looking for something that, you know, makes them feel good and that they enjoy eating. That's a little different. Um, but it's those three things combined that are going on inside of the consumer's head. And we have a couple really cool products coming down the line that we hope will help us kind of lean into that. Um, but I really, really hope that we can continue to be an authentic brand 
that is driven by recipes um, and informing the consumer on what kind of recipes they can use our product with, but also on leaning into that nostalgia and leaning into being able to create a, a pipeline in their brain through those memories. Mm. We get, we have, you know, so many guests with so many cool products and unique ideas, but very few, maybe none of them have talked about nostalgia. So that, that's an interesting angle for entrepreneurship and finding a, finding a niche. Um, by the way, have you seen the Madman episode where Don Draper gives a master class in nostalgia? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the wheel. It's- it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. The wheel. Hey, listeners, you know, just go to YouTube, Mad Men, the wheel. Um, yeah, no, I think that's really cool. And of course, I got to ask the mandatory question, right? Our mothers were in the kitchen, uh, you know, and we reached into the cookie dough uh, bowl and grabbed some and they smacked us with a wooden spoon and said, you're going to get sick. So tell our listeners, uh, you know, just uh, how, how you've overcome that concern. So there are two ways that you overcome that concern. One of them is not necessarily necessary. Um, but the number one reason that cookie dough is not safe to eat raw is flour. Um, and so a lot of people that may be listening to this podcast might already know this, but flour contains a whole lot of risk factors um, and is not supposed to be eaten ever. Um, and you, wouldn't most, you mostly wouldn't catch people eating uncooked flour, um, mm-hmm. except in our product. So we source a heat-treated flour, um, that's made for RTE products. Hmm. Um, the other way that you make it safe to eat and, and ensure safety is by getting rid of any eggs um, or raw egg in the product. Um, that's not necessarily necessary. You can get pasteurized eggs, uh, but we just chose to make a product that was essentially vegan, dairy-free. Um, we haven't certified it vegan yet, so I'm not necessar- I'm not supposed to say that, but it is dairy-free. And we don't use any eggs and we don't use any animal products. Um, we did that consciously just because it was something that was important to us. Um, but also because, you know, the recipe that Megan ended up making for our stores, it serendipitously happened to be that way. We did not necessarily plan for it to be dairy-free. Um, it just kind of happened. And to this day, you know, I don't know if I would you choose to market it or choose to not market it or lean into it. But it is one of those things that just simply happened with our recipe. But the short answer is don't use any eggs and make sure your flour is cooked or heat treated. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, I had no idea. I looked at some of your products online. I had no idea it was dairy free. You obviously have decided, as you said, not to lean into it. Why? I mean, uh, there's such an explosion of dairy free alternatives out there right now it's something we're definitely going to lean into in the future um there are inclusions in a lot of our products like our chocolate chip where the chocolate chips have dairy in them um for us to really lean into it we would have to change up every skew Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and we can definitely do that and we're working on it um but it's something that we want to do in a cohesive way Mm, makes sense so so uh, Jimmy, you've done a lot of uh, really cool things yeah, since launching the company. Looking back, what are some things you might have done differently? There are a lot of things. <laughs> I think any entrepreneur should actively reflect on what all the things that you have messed up. Um, it's really good to learn from those experiences. A couple of them for me personally. Um, 
I would not have attempted to franchise our stores or grow the footprint our stores like just to, to grow the amount that we had if I had known what I knew several years later. Uh, the first thing being in order to franchise a concept, you have to make something so like bulletproof that anybody can run that business. Um, and sometimes that's not possible. Uh, in the, in the case of no baked, we would have had to either find a different franchisees who wanted to be real entrepreneurs. Um, because when you're piloting a new shop or a new brand, it's very, very difficult to get customers in the door. I don't care who you are. You're not McDonald's. You're not Dairy Queen. Um, it's very, you're not buying that franchise. You're buying something else. So that's one mistake that we made. Um, the second mistake that we made in, in terms of just over expansion was leaning into something uh, without realizing that what you really should do is micro test and pivot until you figure out what your company's mission or what your really your core value prop is. So it's really, really hard to pivot from a retail lease. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. that has been a thorn in my side um, for the last three years. And I, I will say that, you know, a lot of it comes from the overconfidence of being 23, opening up that first store, making a ton of money, and then saying, I could do this over and over again. What's going to stop me? And not necessarily thinking about the things that will stop you, which is where your head should be at if you're attempting to anticipate those problems and then solve them before they even happen. So rather than solving problems before they even happened, we just ignored the fact that they might happen. Um, That I think is something that no matter how old you are, I always say like, oh, I was 23 when I started the company. I do think that anybody that gets into entrepreneurship for the first time, whether they be 50 years old or 20 years old, will go through that. They will go through a period if they have serious success right off the bat where they do not think anything can go wrong um, is one of the biggest trip ups for any entrepreneur is to think this is a rocket ship and this rocket ship is not going to blow up Um, because there's always problems no matter who you are. The really, really great entrepreneurs recognize that there are serious issues that are going to come up and they're already thinking about how to fix them. Um, And that's something that took me a lot of experience, uh, you know, messing up to get to the point of being like, okay, well, we need to anticipate these problems before they happen mm-hmm. um, and learn how to pivot, you know, and be agile, you know, until you're a hundred million dollar company, you don't need to be doubling down over and over again on the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you had to do it over again, would you, would you say fail faster? Would that yes. have mattered? Fail faster. That's, that's what I'm describing. It's, yeah. uh, just fail fast and then, you know, learn how to not completely fail if you know you have something. So I think that the uh, the the ticket for entry into CPG is to have a product that people actually want and enjoy. Yeah. Um, but I think that's only the entry ticket. Everything else, all the operations, all of the way the way you sell your product, how you distribute it, those that's what gets you. Yeah. That's that's what causes companies to fail. I'm here with Jimmy Thiemann, who is co-founder of No Baked Cookie Dough. Um, you talked about the failure of franchising. You wouldn't you wouldn't do that if you had to do it over again. Any other failures uh, without giving away anything top secret, or any other successes without giving away any, any anything top secret that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, 
Um, I think big success was making our company more agile as far as getting rid of fixed costs and then allowing ourselves to really lean into things that grew revenue. So if you don't have a lot of fixed costs, you have a lot of capital coming in or you've raised capital, you can dump all that money on advertising a new product or a new idea and you can find out if it works. Um, that has been really, really helpful for us to be able to grow revenue, but also figure out where our niche is. Um, the other successes that we've had have really fallen along the lines of the stores that we opened that did really well um, and then allowed us to learn about our customer and create the best possible product. Um, I don't think that we've necessarily figured out um, and I won't ever think that we've figured out sales and distribution and how to get our product to the customer the best way possible until our sales reflect that in my mind. Uh, and that's just the bar that I've set for myself. Like, until I am a significant piece of the cookie dough category, I can't say that I have figured that out, but I can say that the one huge success we've had is creating an incredible product that a lot of people want and actively tell us is better than other products on the shelf. Um, I think that's key. And I think being able to market that and then sell that attribute is what, you know, we, I think we, I think we have a really good thing going with GoPuff right now. Um, and I think that we're getting a ton of traction, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you we figured it out um, until I can look at it and say, we've definitely figured it out and we're growing, you know, a hundred percent year over year again. Um, which is something e-commerce allowed us to do to, to a certain extent. Um, but I think that, you know, it's all about figuring out how to get your product to the customer and finding your customers in the easiest way possible. Um, and I hope that's what we're doing. So let's get inside the head of, uh, an innovator. Um, what, what are the traits? What are the attributes that, that you believe, uh, separates top innovators from, from folks who, you know, just don't have the level of success? So personally, um, I think the number one attribute uh, is the ability to be irrationally positive and confident. Um, it sounds ridiculous, but I think that that is key uh, to being able to sit through watching people say it's not going to work. Um, if you're truly innovating, so you're bringing something to market that people don't understand. So there's going to be customer education. It's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be early adopters. Um, you're going to have to cross that chasm and, you know, get to the point where people actually want to buy your product. Um, and you may be too early. So you may have to sit around for years waiting for the market to kind of come around and see what you see. So being able to be irrationally positive, I think helps innovators in that regard. You know, we've been at this for five years. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing it to probably another five years or more. <laughs> so mm. that's, that's something that you got to kind of wrap your head around. Um, and we're not even innovating in that big of a way where we are innovating, but we're not doing something that's so outlandish. It's confusing for people. I always like to look at people who have piloted products like electric cars, solar panels on top of your house. Um, anything that is so confusing to the consumer when it's first launched that it doesn't make any sense to them. Um, convincing someone to charge their car instead of go to a gas station is very hard. So I think that, you know, being rationally positive allows you to run that marathon 
um, and it's a huge key factor in being an innovator. Um, the second just tags along with that, being able to see what other people simply do not see. Um, being able to go where other people just don't want to go right now, or they think it's ridiculous to go, that allows you to innovate on something that, you know, a lot of us, I think, in our lives walk around, you see things that are inconvenient or confusing, and then you just don't do anything about them. Mm-hmm. So it's this it's this little thing in your head that goes off and says, I should do something about that. Um, for Megan, for, for, you know, our CEO, my wife, uh, the person that made the cookie dough, for her, it was simply the fact that, hey, this should be a product on the shelf. Like, this store should exist. Why doesn't it exist? And then just bringing that to life. Um, so it's this ability to see what other people do not see and then actually act on it. Um, cause I think a lot of people do, I, you probably do see things in their life that they think are silly or strange and should be innovated upon, but they won't act on it. Good advice. And a lot of, uh, a lot of folks we talk to use commands starting day one. Sounds like you didn't have to do that because you were making the product in store or offsite. Have, have you ever used commands? We currently do. Um, we did not for a very long time. Uh, we scaled up in-house manufacturing at first because it was very hard to find the right co-man. Um, and I will say that my experience with it has been both positive and negative. And I think that for anybody looking for a co-man, the number one key factor that I overlooked and now I will never overlook again are the little tiny details. Um, because for instance, we, we've had a couple co-men make our product, like the actual dough itself, perfect every single time mm-hmm. and then they mess up something silly like they got cookie dough inside of the case and on the outside of the jar hmm. on a few of the jars and that that doesn't look good um or the jars lids come off because they weren't sealed on properly um or a label is crooked so those little things that's what the customer is seeing and that's what you know the grocery buyer is seeing when i send them a sample yeah. so that is honestly your first impression and so for me, those were really frustrating aspects of working with someone where I paid all this money for this product to be run. The product got run. I've taken advice from a few other CPG founders. Hey, go watch the run. I watched the first product run. I was there the whole time. And I didn't even notice those things. Mm. So I will say that attention to detail because you need to be looking for things to go wrong is probably key. Um, and that's something that I'm not very good at doing. I always look at the bright side and that might be, that might not make me an operations person. (laughs) So going forward, as you continue to innovate, um, what are some of your biggest speed bumps? Really, really big speed bump is finding again, scaled manufacturing partners. So, so those partners that know how to make sure the entire process will work perfectly be able to give us a realistic expectation of what may go wrong um, and then be able to scale that up so that we can meet demand if we actually succeed um, finding the right manufacturing partner is so hard it's it's incredibly hard find and even on the supply chain side finding the right ingredients and then being able to get them in a timely manner is insanely hard these days um, mm-hmm. and packaging uh, there is a specific kind of packaging I've been looking for for nine months and I haven't found it. <laughs> and, mm. and when I, I, I got came close to it, uh, the minimum order was like 400,000 units. 
Um, so just being able to figure those things out, those little pieces as a small company is very, very hard. And I, you know, when I look to the future, I don't see it getting any easier. Um, I think scale will bring some things to be easier, like a $400,000, 400,000 unit minimum may not look like a lot if we were selling 400,000 units a month. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, it's a really big commitment on a new type of packaging. So mm -hmm. we don't even know what it looks like yet. We don't know if the consumer will like it. We don't know if they'll, it'll resonate well. Um, we don't know if they'll think that our cookie dough is cream cheese. So <laughs> you have to make sure that those things are, you know, put in place. They actually working and you have to somehow balance that with the realities of the world. Um, and that's that I, that I feel like is our biggest, uh, our biggest hurdle. The second biggest hurdle is just getting buyers to believe in the product. But I think that's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, that's just persistence and when we get a chance don't mess it up mm -hmm. um, which is what we've tried to do mm -hmm. and so what what can you share with our listeners on what's next for you and for no bake cookie dough so uh big things coming this year uh you know we're going to keep expanding our partnerships with uh you know digital retailers um, and we're going to hopefully expand our partnerships with the physical retailers as, as well and scale up cookie dough, uh, production. We also have a cool, really, really cool new product coming, um, which is going to be a baking mix, um, that you don't bake. So <laughs> leaning, mm. leaning into what we do best, which is make products that are meant to be eaten. Um, and also continue to expand upon the fact that we want to create snacking experiences for customers so i want you to go home with our baking mix and create some edible cookie dough and then put it inside of a crepe and and make a crepe like i, I want you to do things like that and i i want to create that kind of um experience for our customers so we we have that coming hopefully in q4 if we can knock out the supply chain stuff um and then the thing that i also, you know, I'm not, I'm usually not that excited about because I don't like doing it because it's a nightmare, but hopefully we'll be raising funding, um, at some point in the middle of this year to make sure all that growth can happen. Um, we raised a crowdfunding around this last year in 2021. Hopefully this year will be our first, uh, real funding round. Um, and it will allow us to, you know, grow into the company that we're trying to become. Well, I know there's a lot of private equity companies lined up to, with, uh, with money for really good, solid, unique uh, product companies. So I'm sure you're not going to have a challenge raising money. Yep. There's uh, $900 billion sitting, waiting. <laughs> so I, I am, uh, I'm hoping that this year will be, you know, it'll at least make it easier to, to find the check size. Um, but you got to still convince them that it's a good idea. Sure. And hopefully we can do that. And so uh, people getting hungry listening to this podcast, nobakedcookiedough.com. You can, looks like you can direct order there if there's GoPuff in your community. Um, um, and, um, you know, a lot of uh, fellow entrepreneurs like to reach out and, uh, you know, uh, inquire about uh, common uh, problems and share with each other. If folks want to do that, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me, um, I'm on Instagram, uh, 
it's public at James Feeman, uh, just like my name. And also no baked is on Instagram. Please go follow us. Uh, it's at no baked. Um, we're on all other socials at no baked. Um, I do have a Twitter, but I barely, barely get on. Hmm. Um, and I am very, very active on LinkedIn. And I mean that, I that may be how this podcast happened. I'm not sure, but I, uh, I try to stay really active on LinkedIn. So if you connect with me, I'll connect with you back. Um, I'll comment on your posts and, you know, interact with you. I love, I love seeing what other entrepreneurs are doing on there. Um, that's always a lot of fun. Terrific. Yeah. And I know, uh, the community really appreciates everybody helping each other out with tips and suggestions and, you know, maybe just emotional support, right? (laughs) Emotional support is big. It's really, really big. I have, I have a friend of mine that has been an entrepreneur for a very long time and he calls me almost on a weekly basis. He's like, Hey, how are you doing? (laughs) Like just trying to make sure that you're okay. (laughs) Good, good mental place. Um, cause it can be a wild ride. Yeah. So, so Jimmy, I ask everybody uh, who's a guest on the podcast the same question, two-part question. What advice would you give to two different sets of folks? First, innovators already in the CPG space, maybe working even for a large company. And second, new people just starting their career in this space. So I'll address the first one first. Um, I would say to anyone working in innovation at a food company. Stop following trends. Stop attempting to make products that fit a certain criteria uh, on a label. Start making products that you think are truly innovative. Um, and pitch them and see, see what happens. Uh, I, I do think that there is a ton of room for really interesting innovation outside of catering to a certain audience. Um, and so I'm excited about that. And I hope that more people will get excited about it. Um, and that does not have to mean you have to make snack food that's bad for people. Uh, you can you can take really cool quality ingredients, just like a chef does in a restaurant, create a really cool new dish, item, whatever it might be, and then go see what people think about it. Um, and you can even make things that previously weren't attractive to the consumer, like a Brussels sprout, suddenly the coolest dish at every restaurant. <laughs> on the appetizer mm-hmm. menu. Um, the, the second group, people just getting started in this industry, um, whether you're you know, entering a new job or you're an entrepreneur um, and you're trying to start a new product, I would say that, again, and I said this earlier, the ticket for admission uh, if you're starting a company is to have a product people actually want. Um, and that's just the ticket for admission. You can have the coolest, best product in the entire world, don't care what industry you're in, if you can't sell it, you can't market it, and you can't operationally make it come to life, then it doesn't matter. Um, and so I would say that from the beginning, make sure that you're agile on those areas. Don't go doubling down on something before uh, you know it's going to work. Um, and stay very, very lean and agile when it comes to experimenting with whether or not people want the product, experimenting with a new co-packer. Don't go signing some sort of five-year deal where you give them equity or mm. <laughs> some other nonsense um, do test periods, do trial periods, see if things work before you jump all the way in. Um, that's how you avoid really big mistakes. That's how you keep your mistakes small. Um, mm. and you don't sink your company or sink your livelihood. Yeah. We talked about fail fast. So it's also fail small. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. 
Um, so, Jimmy, before we go into wrap up, any other you know comments or words of advice you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, I would say uh, just go out there and um, try to be creative. I I love seeing all the new really cool food companies that get started. I would like to think that most of them start that company thinking like I created this cool new product. I think it tastes great. I think it serves a cool market that's not getting served right now. And they go out there and try to do it. Um, I want to see more of that. I, I think that we, I know that people say the CPG boom or the direct to consumer boom is over, but I, I disagree. I think that social media kind of kicked it off in the early 2010s. And I think it's going to get crazier because I think there's a lot of people out there with really cool ideas and I hope that they act on them um, because that's the only way innovation actually gets done. Mm. Well, good advice. Thank you. Thank you for that. So I want to thank our our special guest today, Jimmy Feeman, who is co-founder No Baked Cookie Dough. Uh, go check it out. Go check their products out at nobakedcookiedough.com and get in touch with uh, Jimmy to chew the entrepreneurial fat uh, on LinkedIn or other venues. And Jimmy, thanks so much for being a guest with us today. Thanks for having me on, Gary. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.